Hello and welcome to What's Going On, Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean, the podcast that brings biweekly conversations with people who know and work extensively and at the ground level in Africa and the Caribbean to the people of the African diaspora. Join us as we follow social and economic development issues in and around Africa and the Caribbean, including issues about youth, health, education, business, emerging entrepreneurs, gender equality, you name it. If it relates to Africa, the Caribbean, and the people of the African diaspora, we'll talk about it. What's going on? Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean wants you to stay connected to the people and places that you love. So join us. We're your hosts, Maranke Ocean Martin and Grace Ocean. We're talking to Mr. Barry Adedimala, the Managing Director and CEO of CNS Marine, Nigeria. CNS Marine specializes in providing trained and experienced personnel for offshore marine projects and is headquartered in Nigeria. Barry was previously a director for global markets at Cambridge Energy Research Associates, a leading international consulting think tank. He is an advisor to several multinational companies on international oil market strategies and so has an extensive knowledge of projects, activities, and political climates of the EMP industry in West Africa. Barry is by definition a problem solver and strategic planner. And we're looking for strategic thinking about Nigeria's future in light of the NSARS protest. So we're going to be picking his brain on that later. But before we start, let's welcome our guest, Barry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time out here. I know that you are you travel back and forth between Nigeria and the U.S. and probably other places around the world, too, except we know that COVID-19 slowed you down some. Absolutely. It's, it's kept me grounded. <laughs> it's kept you grounded. And I'm sure yes. your family thrilled about that too, right? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying you're home too much. Is that? Is, That's correct. I, I may have stayed a little longer than I ever expected. Just anecdotally, I'll tell you that I calculated how many flights I took last year. I think I took about 32. Good and gracious. This, and this year, two. So, <laughs> from thirty-two to two. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, the the kids and folks are probably saying, "Dad, when are you when are you off again?" Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Barry, tell us a little bit about your company. Sure. Thank what, you. What do you uh, do, and how do you do it? Okay, we are a oil field service company, and Basically, we support the international companies that work offshore in exploring for oil and gas, which is really the mainstay in Nigeria, which is the market I'm currently working in. We also have presence in other markets, Equatorial Guinea, Ghana, and we're looking at other emerging markets like Guyana for place to provide services to the national international oil companies. 
Okay. Specifically, we provide marine services, which include providing vessels and personnel that go offshore and participate in the inspection, maintenance, repair of offshore assets, which include remote operating vehicles, which can go as far down as 4,000 feet to repair or, or maintain any South Sea assets that's used for the production of oil and gas. And, and you've been in the business for how long? Well, I've, I've been on this side of the business, on the service side, approximately nine years. Okay. Uh, prior to that, I worked, like you said earlier, for a consultant firm providing strategic planning, market entry strategies for international energy companies. And I covered Africa in some instance, and then I also had a, a global coverage for the power sector. From there, I moved on to develop power projects around the U.S. before I decided to head to Nigeria and at least bring back some of the experiences that I've learned while working in corporate America back to the the market or the industry in Nigeria. So you've been in the energy industry for many years. And so you... Since energy, or I should say oil, is, has been Nigeria's main stay, you know Nigeria pretty well. So as I said before, that we're looking here to talk a little bit about Nigeria's future in light of some of the things that, that are going on. Okay. And it's ironic, perhaps not surprising, that 60 years after independence— we're at this at this stage. So my first question to you is, what would you say that Nigeria has achieved in that time? What we've achieved is not as much as what we have not been able to achieve. And I think in 60 years, maybe the country has gone backwards, but that's mostly because of the tremendous growth that in the population and really the the requirement to share in the public cake, which is not enough to go around. And unfortunately, we have not done enough to build industry, to build other capacity outside of the oil markets. So interestingly, my first job in the consultant sector was working for a Harvard professor, uh, Danny Jurgen, who wrote the book called The Prize. Ah, I and, read that book. Okay. Amazing. And so really, it, it, it really walks you the, through the nexus of the impact of oil over the last 100 years mm-hmm. on, 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 the, on the global markets. And I think the subtitle to the book is called The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. And so Nigeria, in its sheer luck or positioning, found oil, that's good oil, and started finding a lot of it. And that really changed the dynamics, I, I believe, of the country. Because it was a lot of money coming in with very little work to be done, mm-hmm. at least for the population. So 
a lot of folks moved from the villages and from the small towns and wanted to participate in in that revenue flow by moving to the city, chasing the, the lights of the city. One thing I remember when I was quite young in Nigeria was seeing pictures of the pyramids in the north, which was the groundnut industry, mm-hmm. or peanuts as it's called here. And that was a formidable sector in the farming sector. Cocoa was very formidable. These are industries that have vanished over the years because nobody wants to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I've moved to the city to work as engineers or to work in the service sector. We're supporting the oil industry where you can make more money, but we haven't done a good job of allocating as a country mm-hmm. that influx of money to the relevant sectors that would help develop the country. I think any developing country that you um, see, education is paramount. And I I just don't believe Nigeria spent enough on the educational system to grow a base that can participate in multiple industries and not just one. I think today... I, I don't have the exact number, but probably over 80% of the GDP relies on the oil sector. That's a huge imbalance. And so whenever anything happens, which is what we're going through today in Nigeria, it's actually a, a um, cataclysmic event. So oil sector is tanking, COVID happens, Demand goes away, mm-hmm. and you have a glut of supply that nobody's interested in. And so your oil prices stay down, and that reduces your access to inflow of revenue and dollar, which is the mainstay of, of the country. And so long answer to a short question, but I don't believe we've done enough in 60 years to support the population that we have and to support the future growth of the country. So COVID has done a lot of damage. We're, we're aware of that. But Nigeria's problem, though, and I guess it's true of, of uh, a lot of African countries that, that has oil as its main, its main focus, but specifically Nigeria. This problem, though, has been really predates covid in the sense that we've had all this money coming in, but it hasn't really trickled down in in any significant way. Africa has a, a, a as a continent has some of the youngest population in the world, right? What is it? Around seventy percent of um, the population are under thirty, maybe. Mm-hmm. Are, are 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 under thirty, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I correct? Yes. Okay. And even with it, with the prosperity, with the oil, Nigeria has had a problem engaging young people or sharing some of that prosperity with its young people. And, and I, it, it's interesting you talked about education because Nigerian universities are also very well recognized internationally or used to be. 
but we've neglected them. I heard sometimes folks don't get paid and, and so forth. So you have professors who can't push any real agenda or produce skillful professionals mm-hmm. who can engage in that market. And you can talk a little bit about that because you your business taps into or seeks skilled professionals in certain areas. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges you face with recruiting skilled and experienced people? Skilled in the sense that you can also train them, right? Yes. What are some of the challenges knowing that our educational system has not provided the human capital that you need for these skillful positions that you have to fill in the marine industry? Does that make sense? Sure. No, I agree with you. And I, yes, it does. There's a, quite a bit of imbalance in the, the uh, pool of candidates that you can reach out to. Yeah, I sat back and looked at the industry and, and really the, the best candidates that you end up finding are either worked in the financial sector, which puts a lot of time and money into training, or you would get someone as an engineer that would want to work for you, but they've worked, if you wanted an experience, then Possibly they've worked for an international company. And so now their pay scale is way over what you can afford. Mm -hmm. And so you just learn to take on folks that are interested in learning. They take to training. And you can tell pretty quickly the ones that that want to learn Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to just show up to work. The work ethic is still needs, it's a lot of work in progress, if that's the right word. And they just don't understand that requirement. And you're not born with it. I think it's mostly you learn from people around you. And as a leader, you show your your team that you put in twice as much as they do so that they can, so that they need to keep up. Nigerians are a very resilient pool. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the poor educational system, lack of infrastructure obviously creates part of that. Power, transport, getting wages on time, strikes. I don't know how many stats and stops that a four-year student in university would have in that four years that they're supposed to get a bachelor's degree. It's so quite a bit. Right. Yes. Most often they end up doing five, six years just mm-hmm. to get that four. But again, regardless of all of those obstacles, you would still find that Nigerian students come out tops um, all over the world when they get an opportunity to learn mm-hmm. and to be able to produce. Now, part of that might be the sheer numbers. Is, there's a anecdote that one out of every five black African is a Nigerian. Yes. And so we do produce a lot of numbers, but we have people all over the world that have done well. And the part of me going back there was saying, looking around and saying, okay, I've spent two thirds or greater than that of my life in the U.S. And so I wanted something different. And that was 
part of the impetus of going back and trying to give back the little I can mm-hmm. in training and taking on young folks just to learn from what I was able to learn in corporate America. So does it surprise you that the young people in Nigeria are rebelling and saying they want change? Enough is enough. They want change. Not at all. I think it's a knock-on effect. This probably started two, three years ago Mm -hmm. with the Arab Spring, then COVID happened, a lot of that moved to the U.S. And teenagers or, or, or youths in Nigeria are exposed And information now travels immediately. So they see what's happening around the world, and they see that they are empowered, that they actually have a voice. Now, how far that voice goes is up to them to stay the course. Now, I think Nigerians are not confrontational as a nation. So it takes a lot to get everyone galvanized to be able to push and ask for change. And in the middle of that change, the government can either listen or push back. And so we're at that nexus right now to see how this is going to play out. I think for the first time, the youth are saying, you're not doing enough for us. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just one little spark that sort of created this flame. Just like in the U.S. with George Floyd, it was just one instance that started folks pushing back. It happens every year in different states all over the place. And, and it was just that one incident that seemed to have gripped everybody's attention. And the same thing is happening in Nigeria. It was just one. I, chances are most folks do not remember what triggered this NSAS movement. And it's really more than the NSAS movement. It's more so help us out, give us a chance so that we can grow in an environment where the rest of the kids our age around the world have opportunities. And they see it online, they see it on Instagram. So it, it, it behooves the government to listen and say, what more can we do? Do, do you think Nigeria, when I say Nigeria, the government understands its young population? Do, do you think they get it? Not as much as they should, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's just a Nigerian problem. I see some of that happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, I think where technology has taken us today has changed the dynamics of that separation between youth and old and how well you can do at what age and the progression that you have in in your life. You can go from zero to hero as a a 20-year-old at the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And you can do it from your bedroom (laughs) as opposed to where you had your normal nine-to-five daily grind. And by the time you're 40, 50 years, You'll have everything you wanted or you've always wanted. So the world is a global marketplace that's moving very fast. And the government's that's making an effort to learn and react to it are the ones that are ahead of this. And the ones that are not ahead, again, I'll go back to the Arab Spring. It was really the youths that drove that. 
in the U.S. You see that happening. And you also see a little bit of a change in of gods in the U.S. You see sort of some of these young and dynamic people getting into politics and making their voice heard of different race and creed. And I, I think for change to come in Nigeria, that's what's going to need to happen. Right. You're going to need to have some young folks step up and take charge of their lives. Mm-hmm. Because if you really look at the last 60 years in Nigeria, I would probably say it's the same six, eight men yes. that have controlled and ran things for the last 60 years. Absolutely. And they, they keep coming back. There's no, so I'm, I'm a true believer in Darwin's sort of theory of evolution. The survival of the fittest. They are at the top of the food chain and they want to stay there. So they'll keep coming back. So you've got to fight your way up that food chain to move up, unfortunately. Do, do you think, you, you said they have to fight their way. Uh, do you think that's the way it's going to be? Or do you think that the government will realize that they need to incorporate or invite young people to the table? Or do, or do well, you think that the young you know, people are going to have fight, to, they're going to have to fight? Fight in the sense that they, they need to take charge of their lives. It's, uh, we just saw it happen in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's your votes count. And if you can't galvanize your votes and say, I want something different, you would always be stepped on. So when I say fight, it's mm-hmm. not in the sense of looting and rioting and taking over the cities. Yes, that's part of the casualty or collateral damage that comes in that instance. Mm-hmm. But fight in the sense that you need to galvanize and use what you have as a pool to demand for change. Do you think that's uh, what they're doing now? They're starting to. And you'll be amazed. I met a couple of young folks that were major behind-the-scenes driver of the last election in Nigeria mm-hmm. that actually helped the present government to stay in place because they recognized that they needed the youth's votes and the only way to reach them was to have a rich multimedia type approach mm-hmm. to the youth. And they were very successful in galvanizing and, and supporting the campaign I met them on a trip to Abuja last year and had a conversation with a couple of them, and I was incredibly impressed. And interestingly enough, it was a young lady. She was probably about 30 years old. Activists had gone to school in Maryland and decided she wanted to go back to Nigeria and press for some change. And so she set up our own political action committee and fought our way to the front of the bus if fights in the sense that she pushed all the she right pushed buttons and, mm-hmm. and, and made sure that her skill set was recognized because she had a, a good group behind her that was able to show that they can bring something different to the table. Interesting. So talking about the millennials and yeah. this end SARS protest, as we've been saying all along, it's a reflection of the same Black Lives Matter movement which in the the U.S. 
targets racism at its core, even with the challenges of youth. So I was wondering, is Nigeria's, because we can't get away from the whole police brutality issue. Each time I read about it, it makes me very angry. And I've, when I went to Nigeria many moons ago, I saw the same kind of behavior, but I thought it was over. I thought it was then. So to see it raised and to hear that it's ongoing and that it's targeting young people was quite uh, distressing. So I was wondering, do you think this that, that Nigeria's police brutality is the, the legacy of its history with colonialism or... Is it is it something else? From my vantage point, I would say it's not just Nigeria. That's what started the movement here in the U.S. was police brutality. And what it seems to boil down to is that you get a core group of people that you've empowered to maintain law and order. And if they're not checked properly, they get they go overboard. They stop thinking. Mm-hmm. And the SARS team was put together for a core reason. And they achieved that. But then they let them run amok. Mm-hmm. I think at one point, it would have been impossible. And without impossible, but very difficult for you to go to Nigeria and not feel uncomfortable just because of the sheer level of robberies and kidnapping and things that went on. But again, isn't that because of of the lack of employment opportunities? What are these folks supposed to do? Yes, so they're all interconnected, and it goes back to the root cause, right? Education, education, education. You can, with enough education, you can find your way out of a hole because you will learn how to dig and you will learn how to climb and you know how to move forward. So I think if the government has not provided that, then you would have a whole group that's growing up without the right tools to survive in the global marketplace. I think if you go back to the 60s, which is probably right before my time, free education and the Western states of Nigeria produced a tremendous amount of Educator, uh, bright and intelligent and educated set. That was our period with the, the development of the intellectuals. Exactly. and But unfortunately, we have this brain drain mm-hmm. that sort of has moved everybody out of the country. Right. The ones that go back after they feel comfortable enough to go back, most don't. And so we've lost a whole generation that has not been afforded that type of level of education. And the result of it is what we're seeing now. One of the things that people always say about Nigerians is that they have an entrepreneurial spirit. It's as if Nigerians are born entrepreneurs. As an entrepreneur yourself, how are the opportunities in Nigeria for young entrepreneurs to move themselves to that next level? There's a lot of opportunities. Unfortunately, the infrastructure to support it is very low. Access to capital, infrastructure, power, water, those things make it more difficult, but it's not impossible. 
Mm-hmm. Again, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future of the youths and what they can achieve and what they've been what they've been able to achieve so far. And I think with continued level of push individually, they can get there. And like you said, we're a nation of entrepreneurs. Everybody believes they can start a business and run a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, for me, I think it's a numbers game. Three out of 10 would make it, which is what happens here in the U.S. I was going to say. Isn't that, anywhere yeah. else. <laughs> and so if you don't jump in, you don't know if you can, if you can make it happen. If there were, if there was a system that was consistent and that if you put in your 40 years at the back end, a proper pension was waiting for you and all those things, then maybe there wouldn't be that drive to always go try to make it on your own. As a strategic thinker and problem solver, what would you like to see developed They've just approached you, have asked you, how do we begin to develop opportunities for young people, those millennials and those Gen Zs? What, sure. what needs to be in place? How do we begin? I know at one point I was following the technology industry. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that the government had, was going to create or had created an agency to support that. And I know that companies such as Facebook and Microsoft and Twitter and all those people have ventured into Nigeria. Some have stayed, mm-hmm. but others have, have not. What needs to be done? What would you like to see? I think it's just getting back to normalcy and creating an enabling environment for the millennials to develop themselves. What's an enabling environment? Get them in a consistent educational system that is stable and they can go through the natural progression of getting an education where there's such instability and low funds directed at the educational system, you will always have a breakdown. And so if you provide that basic amenity that's needed, it's education, it's a roof over your head, and be able to get a square meal, I think you'll be okay. And then here in the U.S., those things are readily available. Even when you can't afford it, the government provides services that support you to have those basic things met. And I think if Nigeria focuses on that and makes sure that that you don't have this class of millennials or teenagers that are not part of the system, then you'll start to see a sea change where they can also compete globally. Nowadays, you don't have to travel to China to go do your work. You can do all of your work on your computer. In the last eight, nine months, I've taught us that. 
that most folks can do a lot of their work, at least in the service sector, from home. And that's what just would help Nigerian youth to be able to compete globally. I can give you an instance where my team, we try to do online calls daily, and half of the time it's an infrastructure issue. I can't connect. This is poor. I don't have power. You have you get those constantly. And those stats and stops affect your psyche and your, your productivity level. Absolutely. And so, and so it's just providing those basic things. And, and, I, and I know for certain that we can compete globally with anybody. Education. That's all I have. You have to, if you don't have it, ignorance is a, a terrible thing. It's been very interesting talking about this and trying to understand it. And I guess for the most part, we all know essentially where the problem is, as you say, with education and also those basic infrastructures, because you can't begin to develop, especially in the tech industry, where the power is on and off and not predictable. But yet at the same time, as Nigeria is often called, what do they call Nigeria? The An economic giant. We like to believe that they are, but this giant is... Slumbering a little. I was, yeah, you, you're, I was going to say sleep at the wheel. Yes, exactly. And, and I guess what I wanted is a sense of what is it that we can do to wake it up? And in, in terms of the, the next step, because... You know what I've always said to friends that are politicians and are in the positions of influence is that you don't have to do it all. But if we do a little individually, it would add to a lot. So it's really everybody just picking up the shovel mm-hmm. and making an effort. And turning this wheel. Now, it's very easy to turn the blind eye and go about your business when you're in the middle of it. And so the way I've tried to address this just to make sure that my core team and maybe folks that are outside of that core team get the same level of drive and, you know, needs that is basic. So I, I put a lot of time and effort into making sure that my team gets proper training. Mm-hmm. And I also give them the option to decide on what they want to get trained on to make them more effective. And I think if we all individually make that effort, we would see things start to change. I, I don't have a, a political blood, so I can't speak to what how a politician would handle it. But for me, it's the basic part of it is that everyone should be treated fairly and equally and we'll see change. Thank you. I like your optimism and it's encouraging to hear that. But as you say, with the politicians, we have to see what approach they're going to take with this. And, and we certainly hope as folks are realizing I should say governments are realizing all over the world, because as you mentioned, it's not just happening in Nigeria, it's happening across um, the African continent and, and in Europe too, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. to mention not to mention right here. 
And uh, this is certainly a a crossroads for Nigeria and its youth. And and it seems that they're ready to keep it going until they get what they want. So hopefully they'll be able to get themselves organized to the point that they can uh, make some of these changes quickly and in a uh, a strategic way. Because it's all about strategy, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Barry, for spending some time with us here. This is fascinating. We'd love to have you on again and talk a little bit more about the work that you do and your work with the young people that you're training and bringing on board, because clearly the energy industry is going to be around for a very long time. Absolutely. <laughs> That's not going away. There's a lot of changes, but we still need that. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. It's, listen, it's yeah. not going anywhere. COVID just slowed things down. But as you said, once it's over with, folks will be, will be flying again. Mm-hmm. Some are doing it already mm-hmm. without fear uh, of, of COVID. But I think one of the good things, though, having said all that, is that Nigeria, as with other parts of uh, Africa, have been doing pretty well in terms of managing COVID which is very encouraging. And we hope it stays that way. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank and you for having me. Yeah, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Africa Caribbean and on our website, eyesonafricacaribbean.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.